0: The Little Big Econ State Forest is one of the best hiking trails in central Florida. It is a strange name, certainly. The forest itself includes the Econ-Lakatchee River, specifically the smaller one called the Little Econ. South of the forest, the Little Econ connects with the larger flow of the river, the Big Econ. Thus, the name Little Big Econ State Forest is born. The river that runs through it is just one of the defining characteristics. It's 10,000 acres of land just outside of the small town of Geneva. You can take a horse onto the designated equestrian trails, bike along its central route, or hike through the muddy paths that wind the park's 16 miles of trail. When we hiked into the forest, our first entrance was predominantly mud, no clear paths accessible without your foot sinking into a good inch of wet dirt. A misplaced step on my part led to mud sliding out from under my feet and my legs covered in dried mud for the rest of the morning. We rerouted and took the high, sandy paths that are typically used by equestrians who ride their horses into the pine flatwoods. The sun was still low in the sky, and the breeze was kind. It didn't feel particularly hot until, that is, the trek back. Luckily, the little big Econ State Forest has a central artery with an incredible shade over the path. This trail is called the Flagler Trail. There are countless things in Florida that are obviously named for Flagler. The man's influence here cannot be overstated, but you rarely see his name here in Central Florida. His name is on this trail because this isn't just any path. It is a straight line and at a certain point, it curves, revealing the Econ-Lakachi River. Over the river proper, there is an unusual sight. Forty or so wooden beams in groups of four, left behind pilings of a long forgotten railroad. The Flagler Trail is the raised land that the elevated tracks connected to, sending early 20th century steam trains hurtling through the brush of the Florida wilderness. Henry Flagler built the Florida East Coast Railway from Jacksonville to Key West, a tremendous undertaking that led to the development of most of Florida. It reshaped the state entirely. Back in its heyday around the turn of the century, this segment of the railway separated from the eastern route passed clean over the Little Econ and continued south toward Lake Okeechobee as part of the Kissimmee Valley extension. Decades later, after World War II, this segment of the railroad was no longer necessary as agriculture in the region failed to take off. The railroad pieces were torn apart, but the wood pilings still stand. In the heart of the little big Econ State Forest, the shadows of this engineering feat are left as memorials to a world that moved on. When we arrived at these pilings, I was excited. As the fan of Flagler that I am, this was an amazing relic of his railroad aspirations. He wanted this segment built, and even though the tracks were gone, the idea still stood. I was wrong, however. By the time this section of the railroad was being built, Henry Flagler was living far south of here in Palm Beach, focusing nearly all of his time on the final project, the Key West Extension. He died in 1913. This segment of railroad was finished in 1915. The beast outlived him in more ways than one. The railway lived on and still exists today. But a ripple effect carried Flagler's legacy forward to dangerous effect. In 1963, the railroad's karma caught up with it, as a series of bombings along Florida's east coast rocked the railroad's legacy forever. I'm Nick DeLisandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the railway war. A story too incredible to believe about Flagler's old railroad and the violence that beset its route in the midst of a labor strike. After nightfall in the city of New Smyrna, its residents were settling in for a relaxing Valentine's Day evening. It's 1964, just a few months after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The first Gemini flight, Gemini One, would launch in less than two months, and the whole East Coast was rallying around assuring this project going well. New Smyrna Beach was suddenly awoken by a ball of flame. Not from a rocket launch at Cape Canaveral, but from a train car containing petroleum that had exploded. Newspapers at the time note that this explosion was so massive that it rattled the windows across the city and could even be heard in Daytona, 16 miles to the north. Investigators rushed to the scene to discover two injured railroad workers who dove from the train when they saw their imminent doom. Fourteen cars were thrown from the tracks, and the forest around them erupted in flames. The explosion was luckily just outside of the main residential areas of New Smyrna, so no major damage was done to civilians. The freight train was heading for Miami, but never reached its destination. The explosion was no accident. Several sticks of dynamite had been strung together and made into a bomb stuck directly underneath the train tracks outside of town. Whoever was operating the bomb waited for the train's petroleum tank to pass over the device, and when the time was right, they flipped the switch. The explosion and the resulting fireball were not an accident. Two days previous, on February 12th, four kids in Titusville, just a few miles south of New Smyrna, were walking back from an afternoon of fishing when an unusual item underneath the train tracks caught their attention. They reported it, and it was soon discovered to be several sticks of dynamite, wired together into a bomb. All told, authorities discovered 45 sticks of dynamite underneath the tracks in Titusville. This came a few days after yet another event on February 9th when two explosions in Miami rocked the railroad operation there. The first explosion knocked 32 cars off the rails and the second destroyed a crane that was being used to clear the damage of the first explosion. In the span of five days from Sunday to Thursday, three explosions and an attempted fourth on Florida's East Coast Railway left the state reeling. The FBI flooded in, searching for an answer. For some, the targets and the timing were no accident. The early 1960s had been cruel to the Florida East Coast Railway. 1962 had been particularly disastrous. A startling midwinter freeze shocked the citrus industry, wiping out thousands of plants that were soon to be shipped out of state. Additionally, the embargo between the United States and Cuba went into place in February. With Cuban trade halted and citrus movement at a dead end, the railroads, which relied on trade for a huge portion of their income, were out of luck. A man named Edward Ball bought a majority ownership of the Florida East Coast Railway, propelling the company out of near bankruptcy and into the hands of a shrewd businessman. The railway, often called the FEC, had survived bankruptcy before, during the Great Depression. That came about when partnerships with other rail lines helped them keep afloat. Now, Edward Ball, desperate to keep the FEC profitable, had another plan. See, railroads across the country had just made a settlement with the National Railroad Unions. Railroads of a certain size, designated as Class 1 railroads, would have to increase the pay of their employees in order to meet the demands of labor organizers. Nationally, all Class 1 railroads had increased the hourly pay of their workers. This was a huge win for railroad laborers nationwide, a victory for the unions. But Edward Ball, now operating FEC, which was itself a Class 1 railroad, opposed this new pay hike. The money that would go to said laborers should instead go to rebuilding the crumbling infrastructure of the FEC's very old railroads. The laborers, obviously, disagreed, and at 6 a.m. on January 23rd, 1963, after months of discussion, 11 non-operating unions consisting of about 1,640 employees began a strike. One minute later, at 6.01 a.m., the FEC abolished their jobs. There was no turning back now. What some believed would be a short conflict had just drastically escalated. No one could have predicted what came next. Rail travel did not cease in Florida. The Seaboard Airline Railroad, which ran through most of the east coast of the U.S., would continue movement through Florida and even would use some of the lines that the FEC primarily operated under. So despite the hundreds of railroad employees that were standing strong against the company, the trains kept coming and product kept moving. Then, within the first two months of the strike, two derailing devices were found, one in Jacksonville and one in Miami. The devices were found before they could be used, but authorities were now on alert. Someone was trying to affect train movement. That became very clear when, on March 30th of 1963, a fire broke out on a railway bridge in the neighborhood of Dania, just south of Fort Lauderdale. Investigators discovered a kerosene-soaked towel wedged between elements of the bridge. The fire was contained before it got out of control. If it had raged longer, it may have deteriorated in just enough time for a Miami freight train to pass overhead and, theoretically, the bridge would have collapsed out from under. The attempts escalated in the month of April when chains were found slung over tracks, parts of the railroad were deconstructed entirely, safety cars were destroyed, and smaller freights were knocked off the rails. The conflict was escalating as FEC went about circumventing the strike in any way they could. They needed employees. The chairman of the unions, a man named James Hadley, spotted strikebreakers in mid-April. They were supposedly hired by FEC to continue work on the railroad and, to ensure their security, the strikebreakers wore guns on their hips. They began working at Oak Hill, south of New Smyrna. On May 27, 1963, a month after the strikebreakers arrived, a fire broke out at that very same train station in Oak Hill. The station was gutted. Oak Hill as a city doesn't have a fire department, and by the time neighboring departments arrived, only the chimney of the main building still stood. Locals heard something like fireworks before the fire broke out, and no one was ever caught. The subtle sabotages like chains and derailment devices were not doing the damage that the saboteurs were intending. The fire, clearly, was a turning point. Over the next several months, spikes were ripped from the ground, destroying tracks. The Orlando Sentinel reported that on September 19th, quote, a 3.25 a.m. explosion Thursday blew up 40 feet of southbound Florida East Coast Railroad track about nine miles north of New Smyrna Beach. End quote. 52 cars were thrown from the tracks in October. The saboteurs, whoever they were, were elevating their attacks, and by the turn of 1964, It was all out war. If things were going to be handled, they needed to be soon before things became deadly. Throughout all this violence, the two sides were facing even bigger battles. They tried to resolve the union deals in court. The FEC obviously claimed that the attacks were being perpetuated by striking laborers or labor sympathizers. The union organizers protested accusations stating that they hoped to resolve the strike through agreements, not through violence. The saboteurs, if they were indeed trying to support the union cause, were disavowed by the laborers at large. Nevertheless, the attacks heightened. A man named George E. Lighty was working behind the scenes to ensure the unions would get what they were asking for. Lighty had worked in ensuring railroad labor deals for two decades, and the FEC case was one of the final tasks he completed before his retirement. In late February of 1964, just two weeks after the petroleum explosion that rocked the windows of New Smyrna, Lighty believed he was on the brink of settling it once and for all. He approached Congress, asking to put pressure on the FEC to meet the union's requests. He was taking on rich men who had their entire livelihoods on the line, but he didn't surrender from his goals. His enemies had their targets set on him, and trains were being driven off the tracks basically once a month, but Lighty saw victory on the horizon. Within a week, a bill was moving forward that would force Edward Ball to divest his cash from FEC. At the exact same time, President Lyndon Johnson was in Ocala, Florida, to witness the beginning of new construction on the Cross Florida Barge Canal, which we'll discuss in depth in our Season 4 finale later this month. 25 miles east of where the President stood, two separate bombs went off under railways, seriously injuring train operators. When George E. Lighty heard of the attack, he said, quote, These acts of violence have no place in a labor dispute. They harm us in winning our strike. End quote. Leidy goes on to imply a conspiracy, though he didn't say it outright. Quote, Who are these outsiders working for? That's what I'd like to know. Who stands to benefit from the public reaction? End quote. He notes that the two explosions came within 24 hours of that bill that would force Ball to break apart the financial holding he had that controlled FEC. Though Lighty's plan could have worked, Ball stood strong and did not divest from his railroad company. Lighty was suspicious, but so was President Johnson. On February 27, 1964, President Johnson was in Miami where he announced that he had spoken with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Johnson said that he wanted the quote-unquote full force of the FBI to come down to Florida. Quote, the continued violence against the Florida East Coast Railroad is appalling. End quote. The bombings were not related to Johnson's presence in the state, but it certainly helped tilt the public image of the conversation. President Kennedy was assassinated just four months previous and a wary nation feared another incident. The FBI got down to business. Just over two weeks later, three men were in custody and the fourth was on the run from authorities. They were Joseph Leo Vedder, age 32, John Wesley Davis, age 28, and Hugh Wynn, age 56. All three were FEC employees, though not members of the unions that were striking. They joined the picket lines in support. Hugh Wynn's wife had died just a few days before the strike broke out, leaving Wynn to raise his two children on his own. Davis had four kids, and his wife worked as a phone operator. Vedder was divorced, father of five children. Two of them, Vetter and Davis, were previously arrested for assault and battery when they got into fistfights with other employees of the railroad concerning the strike. Hugh Wynn, it seems, was the one who was procuring the dynamite and was selling it to his two younger cohorts. All three were arrested by the FBI on Friday, March 13, 1964. Because of their previous arrests, authorities were already keeping an eye on the men. When they got a tip that there was going to be a bombing in Fort Pierce, cars trailed the men as they moved toward the bridge and watched them set the trap. When the dynamite was placed, the men left and the authorities split up one group defusing the bomb, and the other pursuing the suspects. When they arrested the men, a fourth escaped capture, a man named John Katsikos. Katsikos was 40, and was the only one of the four who actually was part of a striking union. He was arrested, and they went to trial in July. During the trial, a man named Floyd Becker revealed that he aided the men in the sabotages, but he was being protected as an FBI informant the defense attorney for the four men attacked Becker, bringing up his criminal record and his greedy behavior. Quote, Becker has emulated the conduct of Judas and improved on it. He has kept the money given him by the FBI, and I'm sure he intends to ask for more. End quote. On July 22, 1964, all four men were convicted. The younger men, Vetter and Davis, who actually planted the bombs, faced 45 years maximum sentence. Wynn and Katsikos, the apparent conspirators, faced 20 years each. Eventually, the sentences were reduced, with Davis getting 15 years, Vetter getting 10, and Katsikos and Wynn getting 6 months with a 4-year probation period. For many, it seemed as though the violence had passed. These men had seemingly aided and abetted several of the most violent attacks on FEC property in the last few years. With them in jail, though the strike would continue, perhaps the violence would stop. Five months later, on Christmas Eve, a derailment attempt was made at Pompano Beach to little success. Three weeks later, on January 13, 1965, almost two years to the day since the strike began, two shotgun blasts ripped through the windows of the home of Mr. and Mrs. Cecil J. Johnson. Mr. Johnson was an engineer who was allowed to continue work on the railroad, meaning he had crossed the picket line. The homes of three other employees who had returned to work were shot at by the unknown assailants, sending buckshot and debris flying into their homes. After the shots were fired, the gunmen fled away in a car, and many believed that several attacks were done by the same men as they spread out over the course of the night. The wife of Cecil J. Johnson said of the attack, quote, My husband went back to work legally, and he's not going to quit unless he's killed. End quote. As far as the records go, this was the last instance of major violence in the strike. No one was ever critically wounded, and somehow, no one ever died from the explosions, the derailments, or the shootings. When all was said and done, the strike officially ended on April 9, 1976. It lasted for 13 years, making it the longest railroad strike in American history and one of the longest labor strikes of the 20th century. Several deals had been made over the years, whittling off strikers little by little, until finally the dispute came to an end. Ray W. Wyckoff, then vice president of the FEC, said about the returning workers, quote, They've been away for a long time, and we're a new railroad now. End quote. Though the FEC carried passengers from 1965 to 1968 in the midst of the strike, they permanently ended the practice to save further cash focusing exclusively on shipping and freight. A different railroad, indeed. Edward Ball, the man who ran FEC through it all, died January 24, 1981 at the age of 93 with an estate of $200 million upon his passing. He is a titanic figure in Florida's history, a visionary to some and a villain to most. In March of 1966, all four of the men convicted of the bombings had their charges overturned by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. The judge that had done the original trial had not allowed the men their constitutional right to defend themselves in the trial. The court overturned their convictions. The older gentlemen were free to go, but the younger had to face another trial. When the older men were called to the witness stand, they pled the Fifth Amendment. In 1967, the younger men were also acquitted and let go. The judge stated that the original trial was mishandled and that investigation had been botched. Officially, the bombings are still unresolved. Newspaper records from the following decades show a few things. John Katsikos went on to be a loud proponent of Alcoholics Anonymous on South Beach, helping inebriated pedestrians that he encountered on the streets. John Wesley Davis was a bit of a local character, known for his occasional trips to the courthouse due to marijuana possession charges. When he arrived, his pet pig named Ollie would wait outside and they would stroll back to their home together. No, I am not making this up. There is little written about Joseph Leo Vetter, but Hugh Wynn continued his union work, hosting meetings with unions to discuss wages well into the 70s. By all estimates, they lived normal lives along Florida's shores. The legacy of this railway war is a long forgotten terror to Florida's East Coast. The tracks survive today, rebuilt from the previously destroyed conditions. Whatever havoc the strike brought about, whatever fear the unions and citizens felt, is somehow lost to time. If you've never heard an inkling of this story, you are not alone. How can train bombings and roaming gunmen disappear from our collected history? It was not that long ago that cars were being thrown from the tracks. I don't take it as any solace that this story was forgotten. It should be part of the narrative of Florida's unendingly strained relationship with the railroad. Flagler made a beast that outlived him in a myriad of ways, and the violence of the 60s along his tracks are just one shade of the danger embroiled in his legacy. This story is just scratching the surface of the 14-year story of this strike. I find that a failing of American memory is how many relevant bits of our history are just wiped away, never to be heard of again. Imagine how the residents of New Smyrna Beach, whose windows were rattled by a far-too-nearby explosion, would feel if they knew their story was never told. For their sake, and for our own, let's all strive for longer memories and more sympathetic recollections. And the next time you ride Florida's east coast path, the Atlantic passing by at a distance, remember the folks who once worked this railroad and the dangers that once plagued our most traveled route. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait Five Minutes, the first episode of Year Three. I'm so glad that you have found this show and have listened to this episode. If you're brand new to this show, if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some great stories in the back catalog that you would enjoy, many about Henry Flagler's fascinating legacy. Earlier this year, I talked about Flagler's ghost stories and the weird ways that we remember him. If you want a good place to jump in, you don't need to go back to the very first episode. You can go right back to the many Flagler episodes in the backlogs. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible to those who haven't seen it, and it tells me what you like about this show. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can reach me at my personal Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her artwork on her Instagram at lauren.nix.photo. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, we're going to dive deep into the most controversial man in Florida. He is thousands of years old, and his name is the Vero Man. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside and please drink more water. Have a good week, everyone.